Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Hey, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 4 through 6. And while you're turning, Tommy, thank you for last week, buddy. I, I love, yes, sir. I love leaving and knowing that nothing misses a beat right here. Do you realize what God has raised up in our staff here? People that know the message are gifted to preach it. And I just thank you, Tommy. I love you. I love your family. I love Anita a whole lot more than I do you, but I still love you. I just want you to know. Second Corinthians chapter 10, 4 through 6. Today we're, we're continuing in a little series. that I, It's the last four chapters, really, of Second Corinthians. And I call it Poise in the Midst of Persecution. Poise in the Midst of Persecution. And this is part two. Today we're going to talk about choose your weapons. Choose your weapons. Now let me get you into this. It's been a couple of weeks. Conflict with people is inevitable as we journey through the Christian life. There's no way you're going to get around it. But the fact that we will have this conflict is not the problem. The problem is how do we as believers who love Jesus, how do we as believers who love Jesus deal with this conflict when it arises? You see, one of the conflicts we're going to have to deal with is when it doesn't happen to us, but it happens to somebody that we like, somebody that we love, and they are being mistreated. Our flesh is so deceptive, one of the first things it tends to do is to take up an offense for a brother. That's what we dealt with the last time. This does more damage. Now, understand what I'm saying. This does more damage than just about anything you could do, and it's very, you, it can hardly repair the damage that is done. Taking up an offense for a brother is based on several wrong assumptions. And there are two main ones that it's based on. The first assumption is that we know the exact details of what took place. And therefore, we have all the information that is needed to deal with this situation. That is absolutely false in every situation. The second wrong assumption is we think we know what God would do in the midst of this circumstance. <laughs> I said it last week. You've heard it many times. There are two absolutes in life. One is there is a God. But two is what? <laughs> We're not him. That's right. And Don't make that false assumption and jump into something because you don't have all the information, etc. Well, you say, Wayne, why do you say that? Well, in Corinth, Paul's critics had really come against him, and they said that he was a coward. He was afraid to come to Corinth and face them face to face. In jest, they would say, oh, yeah, he's bold when he writes these letters, but he's a wimp 
when he gets in front of us, trying to discredit the man so they could discredit his message. Now, this upset the believers of Corinth. Why did it upset them? Because they have repented, remember? We've, this is the reason for the writing of 2 Corinthians. They've repented. It even says that they yearn to be with Paul. They've turned back toward Paul. And when they hear these critics say what they're saying, he's their, Paul's their brother, and they want to see him vindicated in front of his critics. They were just about to take up an offense for Paul. But Paul did not want them to make that tragic mistake. So he cautions them in verses 1, 2, and 3 of 2 Corinthians 10 about three things that they have to make sure are in place before they would ever do anything. And first of all, he speaks of the character that's going to be required. If you're going to step into that arena, you better have this kind of character before you do anything. 2 Corinthians 10, 1, now I, Paul, myself, <laughs> is there any doubt <laughs> who he's talking about here? I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, by the means of. In other words, the word meekness and gentleness of Christ denote the character. That's the way Paul confronts them. That's the way he comes to them. That's it's the character that only Christ can produce in a person's heart. We can't produce this. God has to produce it in us. Meekness is the strength of one's character who loves others more than he loves himself. That's, that's bottom line. It, it's not weakness. It is strength under control, even in the face of people who are falsely accusing us and who would love to see us taken down. When it concerns us as individual believers, meekness is the grace that gives us the ability to remain quiet and calm when we're being falsely accused because we know that, that God is the one who, who vindicates the righteous and he judges righteously. But meekness is a, is a term, it's, it's a beautiful quality that stands between two extremes. It doesn't rush to get angry. You ever known people like that? You're scared to death to say anything. They got a hair trigger. I call it a hair trigger. When you buy a gun, it has a 10-pound pull on the, on the trigger, and usually you take it back so it can kind of become a hair trigger. You barely touch it, it shoots. And a lot of people are that way. Don't be around them. You have to walk on tiptoes because they're so quick to react. That's not meekness. That's nothing to do with Christianity. Meekness doesn't rush to get angry. However, it also is not passive. It somehow stands in a beautiful balance between those two extremes. You see, when it affects the body, when it affects the individual, it can be quiet. But when it affects the body of Christ and, and deception is causing a problem in the body, then it will act, and sometimes with a vengeance, to make the truth known. Jesus took that whip and went into the temple and drove out the money changers. But to balance this, see, some people say, yeah, you see there, Wayne, that justifies what I'm doing because there's a wrong being done, and I'm, I'm going to fight it. Now, careful, careful. There's a fine line between meekness and taking up an offense for a brother. You, you have to understand that there's a different quality here. And so Paul adds the word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the word gentleness. The word gentleness is the word epikeias. It's only used two times in Scripture, the Greek word. Other words are translated gentleness, but it's not this word. It refers to one's mild and kind, gracious manner, even in the face of those who come at him. It's a, it's a person who knows how to walk in the Spirit, and, and the qualities of the Spirit are always there. It, 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 it's a divine sense of timing that's with this word gentleness. They know when to confront, they know how much to confront, and they know how to go about confronting somebody. So it's, 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 it's totally the character of Christ. 
Once this character is in place, what it'll do, it produces a conduct that is responsible. Now, conduct that is responsible is conduct that doesn't take matters into your own hands. What have we all done all of our lives? We take matters into our own hands, and that's caused so much problem. Verse 2, I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who, those some, who regard us as if we walked according to, to the flesh. You see, the critics of Paul knew nothing about walking in the Spirit. You have to remember this. If somebody's coming at you, they know nothing about walking in the Spirit. They regarded Paul as if he walked according to the flesh, just like they did. They would be only too pleased if Paul would get in their face and be bold and, and take them down. Boy, now that's strength. That's what the pagan world thinks is strength. Get in their face, man. Make them wilt. Man, that's a man there. That's a man. Paul said to the Corinthians who desperately wanted to see him vindicated, they wanted to see him come out and get in the face of those who, vindic who, who criticized him in order to be, be vindicated. And Paul says to them, don't you dare push me into that situation. Don't you make me have to step forward and be bold when I come amongst you with your intent of showing me off as to the fact that I could, I could be what they said I couldn't. Don't push me in that kind of situation. You say, why, Paul? Well, Paul answers it because he says, even though he lives in a body that is subject to that kind of behavior, just like the, he was before he got saved, he says, I don't war according to that behavior anymore. I don't use those kind of weapons anymore. That's not the way we deal with conflict. And, and this is something for every one of us to learn. He says in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul knew something that I wish we all understood in the 21st century about being a believer. When you're in the midst of a conflict, the only confidence that's reliable is when you trust God, and you'll see in the message today, only Him, only Him, only Him, and never trust the flesh, because the flesh brings that damage and division and factions the body like nothing else. We're in a war with our fleshly mindset. And that mindset says, do things your way. Resolve the conflict your way. And according to the ways of the world, evidently we're losing in that war. The pastors this year, they tell me there are more pastors resigning from the ministry because they've been chewed up, spit out by people than ever before. Churches are split everywhere. You could go to Ch Chattanooga, Tennessee, 800 and some churches, 400, 400 of them, I think, were split-offs of the others. You see Fellowship Baptist Church. On the next corner, greater fellowship in that Baptist Church. And then you see, <laughs> boy, you ain't seen nothing yet, Baptist Church. And that's what you have. That's what you Why? Because people in conflict choose to solve it their own way. They do it with the weapons of the flesh. They want to be vindicated as being right. And that's what Paul is saying is exactly wrong. That is not the way we deal with conflict. That's what he said. The flesh has its weapons. Get in your face. Confront with boldness. Even lie if you have to. But we don't fall into that trap when we walk surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's more to it than that, as we'll see in our message today. What I want us to do today is look at our weapons. I want us to look at our enemy as to who he really is. And I want us to look at our strategy, and I want us to make sure. You see, if you don't understand these three things, then you're going to choose the wrong weapon. 
That's why I call it, choose your weapons. Weapons of the flesh, is that the way we're going to deal with it? Or weapons of the Spirit? There are three things I want you to see. First of all, we need to know our weapons. We need to know our weapons. Verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful. They're not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful. First thing you see is that the weapons we need in the battle that we're in to combat the real enemy, are to, the weapons are divinely powerful. They're not these grossly ineffective, weak, and anemic weapons of the flesh. The word not, they're not of the flesh, is the word ou, O-U in Greek. Now, there's two words for not in Greek language where we only have one. This means the absolute, in no, no way, shape, or form, not. For the weapons of our warfare are not in any way, shape, or form. They're not even similar to the weapons of the flesh. But instead, they're divinely powerful for the destruction of of fortresses. The word powerful is the word dunatos, which means mighty, capable of accomplishing the task. The literal text includes the word theos, which is the word for God, which means, and so the King James Version translates it very literally, mighty through God. New American Standard, it's, it's okay what it says. It says divinely, which would be God, powerful. That's what it's speaking of. Our weapons are mighty because they're from God. God is the one. If you think about it, when you deal with any conflict in your life, the fr you, you have to go to God because he's the only one who understands the problem. And he certainly is the only one who has a solution. Now, the weapon, the word weapons is the word in the plural, which is hoplon. Hoplon is that which is necessary to accomplish a task. It's a shovel if you're going to dig a hole. It's a pen if you're going to write a letter. But when it's used in a military sense, as it is only two other times in the New Testament, it means weapons or armor, as some translations bring it out, that are necessary to defeat one in battle. The battle Paul was up against in Corinth was an interesting battle. You see, it wasn't just the people. He was up against the battle of humanistic error. They loved humanistic wisdom, worldly wisdom, false doctrine. All these things was what he was up against. This was what was deceiving the church of Corinth. Paul was up against those who had impressive worldly credentials, who were in command of the way people thought and how they behaved. They, they could control people around them. We can see this by the way he contrasts those who God chooses to use. You see, God always goes the other way. God doesn't go the way of the world. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. See, that's what he's up against, and God chooses the opposite. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You see, Paul himself was a total contrast to the way the world operates and to what he was up against in Corinth. Those polished, successful, persuasive men in Corinth that could bring false doctrine in and, and seduce the church's mind. Paul was the exact opposite of that. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't come in with all the, 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 the bells and whistles. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom like the world uses and uses them to convince everybody, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and in power so that your faith, you say, Paul, why, why would God do that? So that your faith would not rest ever, ever, ever on the wisdom of men, but it would rest on the power of God. Now, since this word hoplon is, is used two times for translated weapons in Scripture as the, and means that, we need to look at that. We need to realize that it's not about what these weapons are, and I'll show you. It's who our weapon is. Don't get hung up in what they are. Get overwhelmed by who he is. The word is used in Romans 13, 12. And if you've studied Romans, you know this, this passage and you know what he's talking about, particularly from chapter 8 on. He says in verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, that old works of the flesh and the way we do things. And let us put on the armor, there's the word, of light. Do you know who the armor of light is? That's the Lord Jesus himself. It's not what our weapons are, but who our weapon is. This is once again showing us that before we ever approach any conflict, whether we initiated it, whether it's against a friend of ours, or whether somebody else initiated it against us, before we do anything, we need to be dressed in the armored garment of Christ. That's what he's, Paul taught in Ephesians. The garment of chapter 6, the armor of chapter 6, is the garment of chapter 4. Jesus is the armored garment that God gives to us. When he's in control of our lives and we are workers together with him, then his armor, his weapons, are weapons of righteousness. But they accomplish the task. The word is also used in 2 Corinthians 6, 7. And Paul talks about how he lives and how he deals with the situations in his life. And he said in verse 7, we've already studied this, in the word of truth, that's how he lives, in the power of God. And then he says, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You see, Christ in us is the only one who can solve the conflicts that come either from other believers or even from the pagan world. His arsenal his arsenal is divinely powerful. Obviously, his arsenal does not just include Christ because it's more than that. It has to include his word. We walk by faith. And Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing. And here's the literal. And hearing by the word of Christ. The word for word there is rhema. It means the subjective spoken word of God. That which Christ takes and convicts in our hearts. You're in the midst of a conflict and you run into the presence of God. You get into his word and God takes his word that you've been memorizing and studying for years and he burns it into your heart and says, you stand on that. You stand on that. It'll hold you up. It's not just knowing God's word in your head, but having God burn it in your heart as you get into it to seek him. When Israel was just about to go into the greatest conflict they had ever faced, they had to cross that Jordan River, first of all, a mile, and a mile wide, uh, two and two and a half million people. But that first battle they had was Jericho. Remember when we studied it? And God said something to Joshua that we need to take to heart. He said, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written on it. For, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have success. And the word success in the Hebrew means then you'll have the proper discernment at the, at the time when those circumstances and conflicts come at you that you hadn't expected. Joshua, get into my word. 
Joshua, meditate upon my word. Don't let anything come out of your mouth that's not seasoned and saturated with my word. When we face hurtful conflict, folks, we don't rise up in anger. We don't get in somebody's face. Oh, how many times in my life I said, oh, God, give me five minutes outside the building and I can solve this conflict. God wasn't impressed. He made me 6'7", 265 pounds, so, so I'd have to learn not to use an ounce of it. God has had every time driven me, me to himself. Wayne, you come to my word, son, because you don't have all the facts, and you don't know what I would do. You come to me and let me dress you in my presence, and my character in you is an armor that is absolutely awesome. My weapons are weapons of righteousness. The only thing that will disarm our opponent in the midst of a conflict and the hurtful climate that that that's created will be his character seen in us and his word that seasons everything that we say. So we must know our weapons. We better know what we have our choice. We know the fleshly weapons. Most of us have lived in it all of our life. But we need to know that when you sum all of our weapons up, it can be summed up in a person, the Lord Jesus living his life through us. As we renew our minds concerning the situation by the revelation of his word, and we stand in the face of conflict. So know your weapons. Know your weapons. you got two choices. Do it your way, do it God's way. Remember that old song, I did it my way. Buddy, that's a tragic song when it comes to the Christian life. Secondly, we must know our enemy. We must know our enemy. I wish we could all realize what Paul said in Ephesians 6, 12, first part of the verse. He said, our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. I want you to put that on your refrigerator every day you get up. <laughs> Wayne is not my problem. <laughs> He's just an irritation. Wayne's not my problem. People are not your problem. I can hear somebody say, well, boy, you sure got to fool me. <laughs> yeah, it involves the person, yes. It's not just the person, though, that's causing the conflict. It is what, now listen carefully, it is what that it is controlling that person. You see, fleshly weapon won't touch that which is the real problem. Oh, oh, yeah, the symptoms can be there. They said something about you. They ran their mouth when they should have kept their mouth shut. They, they did something to hurt you. They lied about you. Hey, that's just symptomatic. That's not your problem. Your problem is what caused them to do that. And only divinely powerful weapons can handle that kind of thing. Flesh, fleshy weapons cannot disarm what the real problem is. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. And then he says, for the destruction of fortresses. Now, the word destruction is the word katharesis, which means to demolish something, to bring it to ruin. When I was in Reno, they had an old hotel there that they demolished. You ever seen that happen? I don't know how they do it, but they put those the charges, explosives, in such a way that when they push one button or push a thing down, that, that whole building just went and that's what the word means, to demolish, to bring it to ruin. The word fortresses, as it's translated in the King James, strongholds, is the word akiroma. Uh, this is a strong fortress in which people put their trust. Now listen carefully. They put their trust and they find their security in this. They find their security in it. When it's used metaphorically, as it is here, in other words, the word picture, it refers to the premise or the thought processes that have been built as a fortress into somebody's mind. It's controlling them. It's where they're coming from. 
Uh, this, this is where a person finds his security and puts his trust. Proverbs 21, 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. It's what you, what you trust in is how you're going to live. What you trust in, what you've embraced somewhere in the fortress of your mind is going to determine how you're going to act. And that's the real problem, not how you act. That's symptomatic. It's what's controlling that. Now, these fortresses are strongholds in one's thinking. Like I said, determine everything we do. It determines the way everything we think. Every, everyone acts the way they do because they think the way they think. Behind the actions of any person, whether he be a believer or not, is a fortress, and that's what your real problem is. And when you handle things in the flesh, you haven't solved anything. For the believer, this is a great stronghold. It's going to go on to say the unbeliever puts their stronghold up against the Word of God. Well, we don't uh, put, put it against the Word of God. Our stronghold embraces the Word of God. Proverbs 10, 29, it, it talks about the Word and the ways of God. The way of the Lord, which cannot be known apart from His Word, is a stronghold to the upright. That's why when you get out of bounds, the stronghold within your life will pull you back to where you ought to be. That's what really controls us. When we renew our minds and the Word of God gets saturated into our life, we begin to behave a different way. So a fortress or a stronghold is the framework that is the structure behind all behavior. Remember the, the test that they did years ago on the gibbon monkey? How I many remember what I'm talking about? And they had a little container, and that container had a chain hooked to it and was bolted to the floor, which would imprison if, if something was locked in it. They had a little opening to the, to the, uh, the, the uh, container that a monkey could put his hand through, but if he balled his fist up, he couldn't pull it out. And they put candy inside of that container, and they, they, they proved it over and over again. The monkey's free. He's free, but he chooses to imprison himself because he thinks that he needs that candy. And when he grabs the candy, he can't get his hand out, but he won't let go of the candy. Now, that's what we're talking about. Some kind of something inside. Well, I don't know how monkeys work. I have a few kin, you know, in that way. I don't know how they work, but something's controlling that behavior. Paul continues to illustrate this in verse 5. We're destroying Every, or destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, the substance of the fortress is now being revealed. You want to know what it's all is? He, he begins to tell you. Whatever the mindset is that, that makes the monkey imprison himself when he could have been free, thinking he has to have what he has his hand around, whatever that is, it, 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 Paul identifies as a speculation, a speculation. King James translates it imagination. That's a great translation. It's the word logismo. Some people translate it argument. The argument somebody makes for his case that comes from a framework of how he thinks. This word has to do with a, how a person evaluates what he should or what he should not do. How does he evaluate? It's his reasoning of a situation based upon the mindset or the understanding from which he's coming, for which he has. It's the counsel he gives himself based on the, the mindset in which he operates. It, it's, a person's behavior is determined by the mindset in, in which he operates. When we deal with behavior that is hurtful or sinful, you see, we don't look at that. We must identify 
where the wrong thinking is that causes that kind of behavior. And I'll tell you this, if it's not embracing the Word of God, then everything else is a lie. And somebody has embraced a lie somewhere. He so believes it, he so trusts in it, that it's hidden behind his wrong behavior. Identifying this wrong thinking is more important than, than what a person does or doesn't do. It's where he's coming from. What's, what's, a, what's his frame of reference? Now, this wrong thinking, which has been reasoned out in wrong behavior, Paul says, has elevated itself, now look carefully, against the word or the knowledge of God. It shuts down what God has to say. It doesn't, it's not controlled by what God has to say. Verse 5, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. The word lofty thing is the word ipsoma, which is that which the text says has been raised up like a tower, like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, above what God's Word has to say. It's something that's humanistic. It's something that man has come up with and built it to such a structure that it won't allow itself to hear the Word of God. The word raised is in the present middle passive, which gives us two thoughts. That's a deponent verb. First of all, he's talking about the, the strong towers, the strongholds of, of false teaching and deceptive thinking that the false teachers have raised up in the church of Corinth. But not only that, since it's in a deponent verb, it also has to do with how the people have listened to them, bought into it, and raised it up themselves. So you've got a huge problem in the church of Corinth. You've got a problem of the way people think, which is determining the way people behave. Truth of God's Word forms the basis of the way a believer thinks. You see, our stronghold is the Word of God. We don't cast anything against it. We embrace the Word and the will and the ways of God. It's what calls, it blows the whistle when we get out of bounds. It's what calls us back to behave properly. It's God's truth dressed in God's character that tears down wrong thinking in others. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> don't answer it. Think about it. What controls you this morning? What controls your behavior this morning? Why is it that you do some things that you do? There's a piece of this puzzle that I was going to wait about 17 months before I shared it with you. That I'm going to share it with you today. Uh, if you know me for anything, I'm not very intelligent, but at least I'm honest. Now You're going to find me that way, sometimes to a fault. When I shot that Oryx, if you've ever hunted anywhere you are, you cannot shoot across a paved road. When we saw that oryx, I got so excited. Everybody got so excited. I shot before I crossed that road. When it all caved in on me and to realize that, that we had been in a, in a restricted area, which was so humiliating and embarrassing because we didn't intend that, I didn't tell them that piece of the puzzle. Isn't it amazing what your flesh will do on impulse? Just to protect yourself, you'll lie like a dog. I made that man think that I was on the other side of the road because it was bad enough as it was. I didn't want to have to tell him when I shot from the side of the road. I came home. We went on a staff retreat for three days and kind of got my mind off of it as much as I could. Wonderful retreat. If y'all ever need a cook, call Tommy. I'm telling you, the best cook that lives. Came home. Thursday, I called the uh, game warden. He wasn't in his office, probably in the field. He called me back that night and told me what I needed to do and who I needed to call, and I could send the fine in by the mail. And he said, oh, by the way, I found a shell in the middle of the road. 
uh, well, it, it was explainable in my mind because I can't even remember, really remember how all that happened. I, my second shot, I don't have because my clip, for whatever reason, in a bolt-action gun, hangs the second shot. It won't bring it into the chamber. And I don't, I don't know why. I just discovered that a couple weeks ago, and I hadn't had time to fix it. So I wouldn't have thought about shooting the second time because it won't go in there. So I figured I'd just probably ejected it and put my gun back in the car, whatever. I went to bed that night, 3 o'clock Friday morning. God woke me up. What's it like in your life when you get convicted? What's it like? I don't know how you are, but it's like a horse has kicked me in the chest. I thought I was going to die. I literally thought I was going to die. I even felt hot all over. I felt like I had fever. It's amazing. And God was saying, son, you have not been truthful with that man. But, but Lord, it may cost me more. And God said, excuse me? Did I hear you correctly? 8.37 that morning, I picked up phone, called him, but he didn't answer. I left a message for him to call me back. He didn't call me back. He's probably in the field. Awesome guy. By the way, I have such a respect for the Game and Fish Commission that I haven't had before. Awesome guy. He didn't call me back all day. He didn't call me that night. By Saturday, yesterday morning, I'm thinking, woo thank you, Lord. Thank you. It's over. It's forgotten. I'm sorry. I've dealt with you, but now I don't have to deal with him. Wrong. I took my car out to get it washed. I got some oil changed in it and a few things I had to do, and I came back to the house about 9 o'clock. Of, uh, phone rang. <laughs> it was Ray. And I said, uh, hey, man. And I said, I called you the other day, and I had a, a second question I called him for. And I said, I've lost my number that I'm supposed to call. Can you give me that number? And he, oh, yeah, man, gave it to me. And I, I hung up. And that conviction, that arrow that pierced my heart hit me again. It's like God was saying, what are you doing? Pick up the dumb phone, call him back. Picked up the phone, called him back. He was on another call. God made me wait on this thing. Ten minutes later, he calls me back, and I said, Ray, the real reason I called you is you don't know me very well. And I said, I wish you did. But I said, I'm an honest person. And I said, I live before God the way I want to live before men. And I said, this has been a problem. There's a little piece of the information that I haven't told you. And I said, if you, I don't know if you're a Christian or not. I don't know if you know what conviction is, but I told him the story. And I said, I have got to tell you this. I shot from the other side of the road. And I said, I want to ask you to forgive me, and I want to, ask, I want to apologize to you as a man and a friend. You've been so nice to me. I've got to tell you the truth. I'll tell you what. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story because I don't want in any way this to get back to him in a wrong way. But I'll tell you this. God was so merciful that when I hung up the phone, I shouted. If Diane had been there, she would have thought I was dying. You could have heard me for three blocks. And you know what God told me? Now you can take your hand out, son. Now you can take your hand out. You held on to it because you thought you'd, you could protect yourself. Take your hand out, son. Now you're free. You're free. You're free. I want to tell you something, folks. I want to tell you, the stronghold in my mind is the Word of God. I've been studying it for years of my life. Can I get out of bounds? You better believe it. You don't have a perfect pastor. But when I get out of bounds, the Holy Spirit so blows a whistle in my heart, He drives me back to that stronghold. And I've got to do what He tells me to do. And when I do, the character of Jesus can be worn in my life once again. 
What controls what you do? How can people in a church gossip and tear things down and never even confess it? How can they do what they do and never have any conviction at all? I'll tell you why. They don't have the stronghold of God's Word built into their minds. They're not embracing it, and they're not letting it dictate to their behavior. Can we get out of bounds? We always do. That's why we confess sin. Every one of us do. But what is the stronghold that controls the way you behave? Not just think, but behave. Well, we're destroying speculations. And every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. Thirdly, we must know our strategy. What is all this about? When, I, when I'm dressed in his character, when I'm seasoned with his word, what is all this about? What's the strategy of this? Verse 5 goes on to say, We're destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive by the obe to the obedience of Christ. Now, we already know part of our strategy is that we are dressed in His garment, His character. And part of our strategy is our word is seasoned with His word. And when we're dressed in His character and our words are saturated by His word, then the false thinking, which is causing the false behavior of the pe people that we're dealing with, begins to get threatened. It begins to be disarmed because it doesn't really have the, the legs to stand on it used to have. Paul says we're, at, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, there's going to be a behavioral change because the thoughts are going to change. Paul paints a vivid picture of how the enemy, which is the wrong thinking of those who hurt us and do ungodly things to us, is captured and is conquered. By implication, it would mean in our text to subdue, to bring under subjection. Taking is present active. We're constantly capturing the wrong thoughts that are determining the wrong conduct, and we're leading them captive. Where are we leading them captive to? To the obedience of Christ. Every thought, every mindset must surrender to submit to the obedience to Christ. It's incredible what he's drawing a picture for here. When you're dressed in the character of Christ, and when you're armed and seasoned with his word, and you're dealing with a conflict, you're bringing up a whole different paradigm of thought processes that's going to attack and challenge the way another person thinks. And truth will hold its own. And, and it's kind of like it leads those thoughts away captive to, and the ultimate is, obedience to Christ, to where they bow before him and to what he has to say. Remember Dory Van Stone that came for Equip a couple years ago, and she was down in uh, part of Irianjara that's cannibalistic. And for eight years, they, they saw no behavioral change. The people worshiped pigs. They went naked everywhere they went. She had to go home because of her children got sick, and she didn't get to, get to go back. 23 years later, she gets a letter, and they ask her to come back, and they said, Dory, she saw not one convert those eight, first eight years. They said, you come back, 250,000 people of that tribe have come to know Christ. They're the leading evangelistic people in all of that part of the world. And your husband Lloyd, who had died since that time, she said they want to put a statue to him and the chief holding hands with a Bible in their hand. Come back, come back. She said when she flew in and that the people were lined on the runway because she had worked with all those years, they loved her. And when she got off the plane, she immediately saw they were all dressed fully, 
and she immediately saw the, the difference on their faces. They had come to know Christ. What happened? You see, you, you can't go into somebody's thinking without being armed with the weapons of God. And when you're dealing in a conflict, you're dealing with somebody who doesn't have the paradigm of God's word being the stronghold of their life. What they have done and to justify the way they behave, they've built another type of fortress. And the only thing that will tear that down is the weapons that God has for us. Paul gives us an illustration of how God worked in his life. Romans 15, 17 through 18. Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And how, how did it result? Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. Come on, Paul, you're kidding me? By word and by deed. You could tell by what they said, and you could see by what they did, how they behaved. Something had changed the, the fortress in their mind. It had torn it down, and now God's word in their minds caused a different type of behavior. Christ in and through Paul conquered the sinful strongholds of the Gentiles that he was sent to minister to, and they were led to obedience to Christ. Now, Paul says something to the Corinthians I will not be able to develop today in verse 6. He says to them, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. The word punish is the word ekthikeo, which means brings about righteous judgment. That's all he's saying. There were two groups in the church of Corinth. It's like there are two groups at Hoffmantown. There are two groups at Calvary. There are two groups at First Baptist, everywhere you go. One group loves God and has built that fortress in their minds of his word, which controls their behavior. When they get out of bounds, they'll come right back. They'll confess it. They'll make it right. They want to walk with God. But the other group is unwilling to let God's word and God's truth, the knowledge of God, come in to their mindset and to their thoughts, therefore into their lives. Basically, what I see in this text I'll be studying it again this week and bring it to you next week. I believe God, he's saying God's going to deal with them and with a vengeance. But I'm waiting on you to let your obedience become complete. I want to see in your words and I want to see in your deeds the change that's come in your life. So I'll know who is and who isn't. So we must know our weapons. We must choose our weapons. And to do that, we must know what they are. We've got two choices. We can go the way of the flesh. We can go the way of the spirit. We must know what our enemy is and who our enemy is. It's not a person. It's what controls the way they think. And thirdly, we must know our strategy. And basically, to sum it up, our strategy is when we continue to proclaim the Word, preach the Word, teach the Word, dressed in the character of Christ, it begins to slowly erode the wrong thinking of people. And once the wrong thinking of people begins to erode and, and, and become into ruin, God blows his stronghold in their minds, and their behavior completely changes. And to me, that's an appropriate message for all of us in the 21st century. What weapons are you using? What weapons are you using? David had a choice to go with the weapons of Saul, big old giant, and he said, they don't fit me. He said, I'm going to trust in the power of God. And he slew the giant. I want to tell you something. Giants in your life can still be slain if you will choose the right weapon. It's got to be of the Spirit, divinely powerful. It cannot be of the flesh. Conflict is nothing more than a test to see what you're going to do, to show you where you are, how you're going to handle it, how are you going to handle it. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.